0: Hello and welcome once again to the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dylan thomas and today I have a very special guest, Michael O'Brien. Um, and he just does so many different things. I'm going to actually let him introduce himself, <laughs> and then we'll sort of dig into one of the things he gets into. So, Michael, uh, please introduce yourself.
1: Sure, yeah. Hey, everyone. So, I am Michael O'Brien. Uh, I am uh, a Philadelphia transplant.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm
1: born and raised in Hartford, Connecticut, but... I have been in Philly now for about 17 years, so it's oh, my wow. second home. I would say I became a man in Philly. <laughs> um, so yeah, I um, consider myself a developmentalist, okay, which means I really look at how humans develop, what happens to us in the context of the worst, and then what happens to us in the context of the best, and then what's that journey and progression like? How mm-hmm. do we get from our worst to our best in terms of how we respond to experiences, how we've made meaning out of these experiences, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. And I look at that at a couple of different levels. The biological level, I definitely dig into that reading and research and talk to a lot of folks and practitioners in that area, the psychological level, behavioral level. Um, and then also I look at the spiritual level. The indigenous world has so much to offer uh, all of us. And people don't realize it, but we take from it. Mindfulness practice is mm-hmm. indigenous practices mm-hmm. from, you know, other cultures just yeah. kind of void of the uh, religious belief or the religious dogma that comes along with the practice. But I do look at that world too, because the world has been responding to adversity and thriving for a long time and trying to get to, you know, that space. So that, that that's me in a nutshell. I apply it to a lot of different places, spaces, schools, all kinds of systems, employers, et cetera.
0: Yeah. And I want to circle back to that mindfulness bit, because that is one of the few areas where we see progress when it comes to, you know, combating bias. Um, so let's, let's put a pin in that. But the, the, one of the areas of work I kind of want to focus in on is you do like trauma training, trauma-informed care, trauma-informed practice. And before we dig too deeply into that, I want to just sort of ask you like baseline, what is trauma? I think, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, And I think that's a great question because the, the word is used so much, like language is such a tricky thing, right? And, and the word is used so much and so interchangeably, and we all act as if we understand what somebody means when they use it. Mm -hmm. So we'll say things like, oh, man, that was traumatic. I was sitting in traffic for (laughs) it's like, Is that really traumatic or is that just annoying? Yeah. So (laughs) trauma, I like the American Psychiatric Association's definition. I'm going to give you two definitions that I use. So um, the APA says that um, trauma involves a perceived or literal threat to one's emotional or physical Mm well-being that elicits, you know, brings out intense feelings of terror, helplessness, and a lack of control. Mm -hmm. I love that one because it gives some qualifiers, right? Mm. Because people rarely go, oh my God, that was traumatizing when something has been traumatizing. What they will do is tell a story Uh, about the experience and what, as a listener, our job is to, and, and someone who bears witness to, you know, the suffering of another, our job is to listen and cue into like did they feel powerless did they Mm. feel helpless was there a feeling of a lack of control did they feel like no matter what they did this situation or thing was inescapable. If yeah. those th- elements are present, then whether or not the person realizes it, it's likely that that was a traumatic experience.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, the other thing I like about that definition as a qualifier is that it's perceived or literal mm. in terms of the threat. So I can't qualify for you right. exactly what's traumatic except, but to listen to your story and look for those elements yeah. around powerlessness, a lack of control, terror, etc. cetera. Um, so, you know, often people are being minimized because sure. we're applying our lens of life onto someone's experience and then saying things like, "Oh, it's not that serious." Yeah, particularly with children, right? like, "Oh, you're young. It's not the like, wait till well, you pay bills." Yeah.
0: yeah, I mean, it reminds me so much of how you know black women are treated in doctors' offices, or yes. women in general are treated in doctors' offices, where like their experiences are not validated because the doctor doesn't see it, or because the doctor's hearing it from a woman, they assume, "Oh, you're you're over." You're, you're over-exaggerating you're this. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right.
1: No, that's exactly right. And I think that that example is exactly why, for me, talking about bias and heuristics um, and what I call identity-based experiences mm. goes hand-in-hand with talking about trauma because for so many people, their identity is how the trauma comes to life, how it's mm. operationalized is the like, technical term. But people respond to identities. Um, all the time. It's a part of how we live, unfortunately, or fortunately, you know, I won't say it's good or bad. It just is, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like the way bias works. It just is, right? It's not a good or bad mechanism. It's the social influencers around the mechanism right. that then determine whether or not it is, you know, helpful or yeah. not or creating challenges. Um, so I appreciate that example because I think it's the core example of why trying to make some of these splits. Um, in terms of like diversity, equity, and inclusion over here, trauma and chronic stress are over here, and mm-hmm. this other piece of culture is over there. It's like that's just not how humanity expresses itself. It's not how yeah. it's experienced Yeah, yeah. Um, and becomes this like false binary. Uh, the other definition of trauma I'll throw out really quick comes mm-hmm. from... Um, A researcher and practitioner named Dr. Bessel van der Kolk wrote a great book called The Body Keeps the Score. It's Mm. a wonderful primer on just trauma theory, recovery from trauma, why the arts matter Mm. in the recovery from trauma. Um, And um, he says that a traumatic experience is when what's happening to you overwhelms your internal and external resources and abilities to cope.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Right,
1: like, I, and yeah. I like that definition as well because again, we got some clear qualifiers, um, and I still can't even in that definition and that framework, I still can't tell you what's traumatic because right. I don't know what your resources are for right.
0: coping. Well it's it's a, it's a diagnostic de- for a definition, right? So like, oh, I've you know I've checked your engine, I'm hearing this sound. I can't tell you why, you know, the car is reacting this way, but I can tell you it is reacting this way, right? Right, right. right. Now what's a little frightening about that definition though, is that um the uh the same definition of like X has outweighed your ability to cope is similar for the sort of preconditions for suicidal ideation. Mm. <laughs> it's when your the pain you're experiencing exceeds your ability to cope with that pain. Mm-hmm. So it's really it basically just highlights how important it is to deal with trauma. Yeah.
1: I mean it is who wants to experience life feeling powerless? Yeah. Who wants to experience life feeling So disconnected from choice and so disconnected from uh, any kind of stability that you live in states of terror that are pretty constant, right? There's acute trauma, but then there are chronic traumas. There are things that you legitimately, not only can you not escape in the moment of the onset of the experience that brings about the trauma, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: it's also possible that people live in experiences that are habitual. It's a constantly traumatic Um, Or constantly stressful of a really high nature Mm -hmm. and bringing out these emotional qualities around being terrified, having a sense of no power. It would make sense that if someone's constantly there Mm -hmm. and lacking any internal and external resources to cope or what they have available to them is not meeting the need, it would make sense that people would feel, could feel like... Suicide is the way to handle and manage mm-hmm. and cope. Um, so really, it's about how, and that's why actually, when we were talking prior, I talked about the human sciences, right? Mm. Life sciences we use as a term it's big pharma, gene therapy, mm-hmm. it's heavy research, biomeds uh, you know, perspectives about life, right? Mm-hmm. I guess, uh, but. I talk about the human sciences, right? It's the science of our humanity at its best and at its worst um, in stages of growth, recovery, change um, from a cultural lens, from an anthropo- anthropological lens, from a um, biological developmental lens, mm-hmm. right? Um, and from a sociological lens, because we're social creatures, and it is our relationships with each other that are completely intertwined with our biology um, and when you look at that to me, that branch of science, when we then have to think about issues like suicide or we have to think about issues like um chronic depression, when mm. we have to think about you know anxiety, when we have to think about a number of other issues, I do think there is a space for us to reckon with our connectivity mm. and what role that is or isn't playing positively or yeah. negatively in you know people's life outcomes.
2: Yeah,
0: and it feels like a conversation that's starting to happen more and more. I remember reading about sort of loneliness as yes. sort of a thing that people are really seeing more of now and trying to study more now.
1: Yeah, there's a great article. I just shared it on Twitter. I'll make sure I get it to you. It's a primer going back to this thing with language, like cleaning mm. up the language mm. so that we can get really specific in research and in educating folks around mm-hmm. what it means to be lonely versus what it means to be isolated, mm. right like these are one 's about your emotional experience, the other is about a like legitimate physical state sure. but it, so it 's possible to be physically away from people at periods of time, but you might not feel lonely right because you might have other periods of time where you are in meaningful relationships that are connected that Uh are pro-social that are healthy that are helping you cope in life they bring joy they bring really deep emotional experiences that you need to survive and to thrive sure Uh, but it's also possible to be around lots of people and to feel completely isolated to have the emotional experience of being minimized unheard ignored not feeling connected, not feeling a part of anything, not feeling that there's anyone that you can identify with or anyone who cares about you and the state of your well being, and feeling as if when life gets extra hard, you have mm-hmm. nowhere to yeah. go to, no one to talk to, no one to turn to. Um, and like making sure that people understand these experiences, definitions, um, how they come about, et cetera. Yeah. You know, it's really important when we're trying to figure out how to create um, environments for thriving, right? Yeah. Or for and healing.
0: I, and I feel like those definitions are also important for people to even to be able to understand what they're allowed to sort of say. Like, on the one hand, you have people talking about traumatic situations the situations aren't traumatic. And you have other people who are saying, well, like, well, how can I say I'm lonely? I live in a city or I go to right, a school with lots exactly of people, right. right? And they don't realize, no, you can still be lonely. Right,
1: right. You can be bullied. You yeah. can be intimidated you could be um minimized yeah you know, this this phrase and i've gotten pushback from people on this but i still believe it and i still say it mm-hmm. we use give this term giving voice so much mm-hmm. um and i don't i bulk at that i remember the first time i heard someone talk about the program i was in when i was younger talking about they give me voice you can not give me voice if anyone gave me voice, I guess my mother, my parents (laughs) gave me voice Mm -hmm. because they're how I'm here. My ancestors gave me voice, right? But you didn't give me voice. I have this voice. You can, and so do other people, right? And when we think about our work, you know, we can intimidate voice. We can silence voice. We can um, minimize voice, yeah. we can amplify voice.
0: Yeah, you can punish voice.
1: Yeah, but we can't, I can't give you voice, David. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> I can give you a
1: platform to share your voice, yeah. right? The way you're giving me some space and right. platform right now to share my voice, but you're not actively giving yeah. me voice. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that. Going back to language and yeah. talking about bias, what is it like to constantly use that language yeah. in scenarios and frameworks where people are experiencing powerlessness and we're talking about giving them voice? For yeah. the person receiving that support or help or whatever we want to call the activity yeah. – is it empowering me really to hear that you are giving me something that I'm born with? Like this gets really tangly and I think we can, we need to clear that up. And so I don't even like talking about empowerment. I talk about sharing power. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: That's, that's, that's that's interesting. I mean, there's, there's a lot of there, there, but I do want to at least briefly touch on this notion that another thing, like you talk about these notions of culture, these notions of trauma, like these things are not disconnected, but underlying them all, right. is this notion of power. Right. And how you have to think about a power dynamic. I know like diversity discussions in the workplace is one place. This constantly trips people up is, well, we created a forum for people to talk or we created. it's like, why aren't they coming forward and talking? It's like, well, you <laughs> understand there's a power dynamic at work here. You know, there's an unequal, unequal power dynamics at work here. You can't just sort of say, okay, we posted the job. Everything's cool. Right. Like, right, right. Um, but that feels like it also is part of that, that matrix. Absolutely. So,
1: we are conditioned to remember, mm. even when we don't consciously remember.
2: Okay,
1: right. As a as a species, it's mm-hmm. a fascinating mechanism that's connected to our survival imperative. Um, you, this is what I love about um, Dr. Bessel Van book, "The Body Keeps the Score." I mean, mm-hmm. this is half of the, the conversation. Is you know, like your body is remembering. Things that your conscious mind, your conscious brain, right, is not mm-hmm. remembering directly. Um, and, and for good reason, right? Like more, so much of the brain is governing, if you will, mm-hmm. from an unconscious level, oh, yeah. right? You know, we don't think about it often yeah. as a species, but I think we should, right? Heart rate, breathing. Oh, yeah. Right? These things that like if it just wasn't happening, we would be dead, right? Yeah. Um, But your body remembers a lot of other things connected to the survival imperative, right? Mm. And so situations of terror and the mechanism of our emotions, which are both psychological and physiological emotions, are biological-based. You know, your body is encoding Mm. memory cues so that the next time that thing comes up or something like it comes up, you have... Response, yeah, that'll keep you towards the alive side, right? Of you know this uh, spectrum of life and death, um, and it works at so many levels. And we're figuring it out now mm-hmm. in the twenty first century. We're learning more and more and yeah. more about how this mechanism around our survival, which is really you know to even call it one mechanism is sure. so unfair, <laughs> right? Um, it's so many parts, but this mechanism connected to our survival. Uh, developed over a hundred thousand plus years, yeah, you know, and like, and here we are, where we went from prey number one because uh, an infant, a human infant, as a mammal, compared to some of our mammalian brethren and sister, and mm-hmm. we're we're helpless. Oh yeah, right? <laughs> baby elephants calves can walk, cow calves can walk, yeah, horses, yeah, yeah. baby colts or colts they can walk. We can cry, we can poop. We can pee. We can't even really hold our neck up at birth. Yeah. Right. And so there are a number of mechanisms that are built around our survival because of how helpless we are. But we're no longer prey number one. We're predator number one. Yeah. Right. And there's. 7.6 7.6 to 7.8 billion of us you go 10,000 years back the, you know they're calculating there were under 10 billion of us mm-hmm. so we've got a system that's responding to the world as if we might die any minute cuz it's still kind of true anything uh-huh. can happen but we have uh, exploded on that survival paradigm yeah <laughs> you know but like we still have a mechanism that is responding now to job postings Yeah, because they they can strike up powerlessness. They can strike up terror, fear, um, particularly because income is connected to every basic need for survival in Mm -hmm. the West.
0: Right. Oh man, there's so many directions I want to take here, and I have this image in the back of my head of basically capitalism hijacking evolutionary (laughs) biology. But I think that's a fair (laughs) statement. (laughs) But I want to bring it back just a little bit. So, so this, just to bring back to trauma for a little bit, because it sounds like that it, trauma is part of what's being encoded, right? Either the trauma of our ancestors just literally doing what they need to do to survive and affecting yeah. their lives and to survive to just sort of like growing up the trauma of your childhood. I want to sort of get more into, like, so once we've defined a trauma... Like, how do you use that to inform your work? Like, what are you helping people do?
1: That's a good question. I think uh, a lot of my work is helping people understand uh, the science of our humanity, Mm. right? Um, And that includes the social aspects. It includes some of the biological and physiological aspects. It includes um, the science of learning Mm. um, because we have this really unfortunate, excuse me, this really unfortunate uh, perspective on education in the West, I mm-hmm. think, in particular. I'd even argue to say America in particular. Sure. That, you know, education only happens between, you know, X and Y ages slash grades. Yeah. And, like, that's just weird, you know? And, like, the idea that literacy or literacies – Even in the 21st century, um, mostly like reading and writing and arithmetic based are like the ways to go about learning Um, and like learning in a chair, learning these forms of literacy through like being in a chair. Mm-hmm. Or somebody like with power and authority sure. and knowledge talking at you, and then yeah. you doing these exercises. Right, this is really interesting research around homework, and it's like it's not really coming back that it's helping with mm-hmm. this like fullness of what we would call an educational experience. Um, and so when we look back at when we were all first learning, we were learning a lot before we sat in a chair in pre-K. Sure, a ton right before the cognitive uh or like the language capacities of our brain in terms of reading and writing were online we were still using language. Mm. Uh, we were developing multiple forms of language, not just mm-hmm. spoken language, right? Mm. We're understanding metaphor as language. Yeah. We're understanding picture as language. We're modeling and watching the adults around us and our peers and trying things out, right? All of that is learning. All, so we have this false conversation about models of learning where we're talking about what's your style mm-hmm. and like you know the the reading in that area literature wise is fascinating in terms of the research because it's like we got these it's a little fake i mean mm-hmm. i'm not trying to burst anyone's bubbles sure, sure. but you know the the literature's there right i'm not going <laughs> to get into why and how at the moment because because of time but it's fascinating that we don't spend enough time with the way that we know everybody's learning up front mm-hmm. modeling right
2: Art and media,
1: yeah. Serve and return relationships. You know the, the, the reciprocal nature of a, a, an older person and a baby, mm-hmm. right? And this interaction of talking and the baby mimicking you, trying to talk and find the speech pattern. Like, sure. it is relational. It is doing based. Yeah, it's often problem based. Even like you can watch a baby try to solve some problems. Or like, how huh, am I going to get that cookie across the room? <laughs> over here and i want the toy right like they're really trying to figure it out um and they have adults around them to guide and whatnot so it's fascinating to me that like we lose that understanding of the Mm -hmm. world the older we get Mm. because we are institutionally beat into trying to understand humanity through some very specific lenses that you know we now know are Mm ill-informed for what We've learned about humanity in the last, you know, 100 years, yeah. and particularly the last, I'd say, 40 to 50, have been like a boom. So, all that being said, <laughs> this is the kind of stuff that I'm bringing to employers, to schools, workforce development agencies, etc. So like, if if you learn to see the world through a lens of you being a deficit or you learn to see the world, we call it a mental model, right? Mm -hmm. You have a mental working model of the world where you're a deficit that people don't maybe listen to you much, that your voice isn't valued, that to achieve X, I have to do these kinds of things, which might um, completely be in static opposition of my identity or identities that can make for a very confusing world for mm. a lot of people um and let's flip the script when you're taught that success looks x way when you're mm-hmm. taught that um achievement looks you know x way when you are taught that you know I'll just use a different letter now y way of proving that someone has you know a skill set yeah. is the only way to prove that um then we can get into a lot of weirdness because People, brains learn what is most important for its survival. Mm. And until survival is taken care of, there's a lot of things that the brain might not learn in that moment of intentionality of instruction.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So school can be a really complicated place. You know, and and so can the workplace because people have to learn there, too. Yeah. Um, And so often it's not that people don't have an index of skills I'm finding in the work. It's just that those skills have not been taught to transfer to other spaces or places. Mm. And we're not figuring out how to create transferable learning experiences for people who in general, I won't even say who have experienced trauma because a lot of adults have experienced trauma. Um, But we don't do the job in understanding how, education really works right yeah. and that's like one area i harp on with folks all the really? time is like expectation management in yeah that, in that world it's like you are expecting things and on the flip side designing things spaces and places to get to outputs uh but you don't have any inputs that produce that mm-hmm. you want a creative team you want people to think creatively and divergently do you have the inputs for that right what are the inputs for that? Um, so you got to encourage people to use their voice. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? People got to feel safe. Yeah, They got to feel like their voices are matter, matter that their voices are valued. Yeah. Um, and if I'm coming – so let's go to an extreme. If you're a queer Mexican uh, migrant woman who speaks English as a second language and you work in a corporate environment and people want you to be contributing in a certain way – the climate of the country right now, seeing mm-hmm. all of these folks in the corporate world donating to Donald Trump, mm-hmm. not knowing if your boss might be doing those things. Um, yeah. Sometimes people don't acknowledge the real trauma of like just living under these kinds of threats yeah. in the culture. Like, and then I'm supposed to show up and just use my voice. Like, yeah. Whoa. That might not be a fair expectation unless you have demystified the space a bit, made the values clear done things in that environment to encourage voice to come mm-hmm. forward uh making clear you know that like there is no retribution for mm-hmm. how you feel right like some of the work is lessening the clouds of uncertainty in a space Mm. so that people feel like, okay, I understand the ground I'm standing on. But if I can't see the ground I'm standing on and you're like, run forward. It's like, ah, I don't know if there's a cliff there. I don't know what's going on um and also like let's say you move some of the clouds out the way that doesn't mean there aren't landmines here right so like what do we do if we hit a landmine right like clarifying that stuff for people up front can go a really long way in creating a culture where people feel safe enough to freely exchange ideas then Mm. you can get into innovation then you can get into blah 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 Um, this has been such an answer right
0: (laughs) (laughs) no 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 but like it it gets me at like because it sounds like what you're trying to do is lower the threat level right yes right like if you're, you're near like uh defcon i forget which which order i think defcon one's the worst but we were like you know high level of uh alert it's like we can't plan a bake sale we're the house is on fire <laughs> like no, let's deal with that's, that first and that's okay exactly now right. we can talk about the bake sale right like and i feel like is that is that what trauma informed is about like trying to lower the threat level to create a safe like what is that
1: yeah so trauma informed practices trauma informed care it all comes from this ideology that um You know, it's really about centering our humanity. That's why I go back to this thing around human-based sciences, right? The goal is to center our humanity at the core of whatever we're doing and remembering that whether I'm delivering some service or I am thinking about my coworkers, um, thinking about my family, thinking about my relationships, whoever I'm interacting with, that humans are not, you know, amoral, static creatures, And whether or not we recognize it, we do adapt and respond to Mm -hmm. our experiences. Mm -hmm. And this, you know, I think this dovetails beautifully with what I was just talking about in terms of, like, employers and expectation management, Mm -hmm. right? Um, We have to, and this is the premise of trauma-informed care, that, like, whatever is going on with a person or whatever we're exer- observing in behavior, good or bad. It's never about what's wrong with that person. This is, comes from a brilliant social worker named Joe Federero. He says, it's not about what's wrong with the person. It's always about what's happened to that person.
2: Mm.
1: Right. Um, and something I started thinking about over time is like, you know, the, the the place of when we talk about empowerment, right? Mm-hmm. The place of power is about, and what can happen now that you understand There's nothing wrong with you. Mm -hmm. This is all about what's happened to you. What can happen now with some new knowledge, Mm -hmm. with a set of curated environments, experiences, people in your life who can begin to, help you facilitate your healing process Mm -hmm. who can begin to help you experience the things that you want to experience out of life see the things you want to experience touch the things that you want to experience to have these really impactful transferable learning experiences when that stuff starts to happen that's when someone is reclaiming power in their lives right Mm -hmm. and that is where Healing, growth, recovery, all that stuff can really start to flourish and take place. So trauma informed care is about that journey.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And whether we like it or not, employers can try to act as if they, they're not a part of that journey, but you're connected to their income.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> you're a part of that yeah. journey. And with the 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 nature of the the market right now, the nature of the economy right now, people need to be reskilled. Mm. So now employers are educators. Mm-hmm. They used to be able to kind of skate around it here and there. But if you're going to thrive mm-hmm. in the 21st century, you're going to be an educator. Yeah. And it means you got to learn something new.
0: Yeah. You know? I feel like I, I, I the, there's a project you told me about that I really want you to talk about here, whether it makes sense for bias or not. Oh, I'm sure we can. Bias isn't everything. I'm sure we can <laughs> find a way to make it about bias. But tell me about this 100... Um, jobs project. That sounds fascinating to me.
1: Oh, yeah. So I work for the Village of Arts and Humanities, and it's a fascinating organization with a 50-plus year history, originally as the Ile Ife Black Humanitarian Center, started by a gentleman named Arthur Hall. Um, And so this organization has a 50-plus year history, you know, now known as the Village of Arts and Humanities, and shifted to the Village of Arts and Humanities under the leadership of Lillier in connection and relationship with two core um, neighborhood residents who are part of the organization as well.
0: In which which neighborhood is this? Oh,
1: this is Fairhill okay. in North Philly. Um, a gentleman named Jojo, who was one of Arthur's best friends, um, master mason, master um, builder, um, and... A gentleman named Big Man, Jim Maxton, who learned um ceramic work and was a brilliant artist and a guardian of his community. I mean Jojo was too, but Big Man was like known as a like, helping to guard the neighborhood from outside folks that, you know, might come in trying to be predatory funders, all kinds of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um and so That legacy of building the neighborhood up from the inside. um, And I'm clear that I'm not a member of that neighborhood. I lived in North Philly for a long time. uh, uh, But I didn't even live in that section of North Philly. I wasn't far from it. I was closer to Strawberry Mansion. And the work of the village has been one... Uh, And the work of Ile Ife has been one of supporting families and supporting people um, becoming who they wanted to be Mm -hmm. and really investing in their sense of identity through the lens of arts and culture and the contributions that African-Americans and the entire African continent has made to the world. Mm. Um, And so we do have a project right now, which is looking at how can we work with families to really, like, own their neighborhood in a legitimate way, Um, to sustain that ownership with access to true livable wages, Mm -hmm. and even thinking about methods of ownership Mm. for the neighborhood, Um, and the role we play as an organization, nonprofit, intermediary, But the goal is to get money to the neighbors, not for the village to hold money. Right, right. right, Because
0: then you get another power distribution problem. Exactly,
1: right. And how do you do all of that in a way that's sustained for at least 100 years?
0: So it was like 100 families, 100 homes for 100 100 years. How do
1: you work with 100 families to own a hundred homes sustained with a hundred jobs for a hundred
0: years. That's fantastic. Um,
1: yeah, you know, it's a it's a large enough uh, project that it scares us. Sure, sure. But it's also small enough to measure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You yeah. know, and really learn from. And there's no way you do a project like this to the community. Yeah. Right. You do it with them. Yeah. Otherwise, it's doomed from the beginning. Yeah. Um, so designing with them, Yeah. learning with them, reciprocal learning, bi-directional loops of learning,
2: yeah.
1: um, bi-directional loops of evaluation,
2: yeah, um,
1: yeah. and really understanding that at the end of the day, we will only succeed if both the village and the neighborhood understands that its definition of community starts with each other Mm. but then begins to include those that we do see and don't see on a regular basis in our geographic area and across this region Mm. and I think by default across the nation right because we're not the only ones struggling with the social variables that have created you know mass incarceration that have created um Educational attainment challenges, right? Yeah. That have created joblessness and housing insecurity. Mm-hmm. Um, and going back to trauma, these are traumatic
0: experiences. Well, yeah, like this, it sounds like this project has to, by its very nature, be trauma informed.
1: Has to, has to be human centered. Yeah. Has to be yeah. trauma informed. Has to be informed by our humanity and also mm. informed by. Our joy, right, Mm. informed by celebration, informed by um, a complex understanding of history of space and place, Mm. uh, informed by a complex and direct understanding of policy and purposeful disinvestment. Yeah. Um, But also, you know, how people, and particularly in this case black people, have fought against that adversity and challenge along every step of the way Mm. from our landing here in 1619 till now, um, how we have been able to thrive. Our thriving capacity is fascinating as a people and has been challenged every step of the way, bombed out every step of the way. Um, And so there's a lot to learn from and a lot to iterate from and then there's space to add new things, and we're really interested in that whole journey.
0: I, I'm just gonna be real with you, like how are we still here, yo? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, and it's fascinating, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, and and we're gonna we're gonna get into the the 400 years in a second, but um it's interesting. Something you said about joyful practice. I was actually at a session at South by Southwest talking about it's the 400th year. Uh, anniversary of when slaves first arrived in this country and one of the people on the panel was sort of talking about you know all these different projects that were going on to sort of like commemorate this and deal with the sort of like trauma of it but one of the things she pointed out was i'm also trying to learn more about joyful practice <clears throat> that there is there has to be room for joy even in this dark place and this dark adversity and the work we have to do it's it's grim work in a lot of ways but the, the 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 idea that she made a point, right, to say there has to be joy in this as well for it to even be sustainable. I found that fascinating. And like, I don't know if that's something you think about when you're trying to... Oh, yeah,
1: all the time. In fact, some t- a couple of years ago, I used to, in the trauma-informed circles, if you will, or the trauma theory, public health, adverse childhood experiences, ACEs is the term people use um, to um, kind of codify adverse childhood experiences into an acronym in that community, I started using this term, like, what is joy in practice? Mm. And it came from being at a, um, a conference, and I'm, to this day, heartbroken that I cannot remember the woman who shared this. It was a woman of color. Um, she got up, and she said, you know, trauma and grief schedule themselves, <laughs> so we have to schedule joy and celebration. And, I mean, like, it felt like fire went from yeah. my toes to my head. I, like, yeah. jumped up, and I was like, that's it like you're so 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 right and so so accurate um and i i don't know why this is coming to mind directly i think it's because my mind is still on the explanation around like why trauma informed practices and spaces for like employers or schools or whatever Mm -hmm. and performance right so like the priming literature comes up for me Mm. um so remember your body remembers stuff it's encoding the meaning you're making in the world at the same time that it's encoding um you know your your experience through the world and you are understanding through power dynamics like your place and space in it even if you know, it might not be objectively reflective of like your place in space in terms of class or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. This is where meaning making is such a fascinating um, process and mechanism. But it's interesting literature and research a woman, Pamela Smith, um, has been embarking on for quite some time, looking at like how does someone's perceived um, powerlessness um, impact executive function? Mm. Um, and there's some interesting and like scary results in that area, right? So there's a bunch of the priming literature in general, which I've talked to some friends who are like, you yeah, know, they're. Professors at UPenn and social sciences and cognitive sciences, and we've talked about it because I'm like, well, I'm reading where some of this like priming stuff is kind of fooey, mm-hmm. and then and the the replication of the experiments are like, man, nah. and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So generically, here's we're kind of talking sure, about sure, priming sure. literature is like some of the research is fooey. However, there are core elements and constructs which have been validated. Okay, right, and that basically what is accepted is that. People can be primed mm. and performance can be impacted by how you've been primed to think about the task at hand mm. and how your. Well, that's one. And then mm-hmm. two can also impact or what also impacts that is how you've been primed to think about who you are, mm. your positionality, your skills and talents, worth, et cetera, your educational background, imposter syndrome, all that stuff can be sure. primed and also impact skill recall, right, in a moment. And that's not mm. skill development. These Skill recall is the... Yeah, you got it. Up of but skills you we up, have, right, Right, the, uh, that can be impacted. Mm. And so Pamela Smith is doing really interesting research looking at, like, executive function um, impact. And is finding that direct primers mm-hmm. around, like, so if I were to say to a group of women directly that... Um, you know, yeah, women are bad at math and science, so, you know, most of you are probably going to do really bad on this test because you're women. Good luck with the test I'm about to give you. That's going to have an impact mm-hmm. statistically. Um, And just having, like, visual cues in the yeah. room up that could prime, like, oh. would have an impact as well. And so this is where I get back to joy and meaning. Yeah, yeah. is like w- the world is set up with primers, <laughs> right? right, for us to not think about ourselves yeah. as actively bright capacity building or the potential for our growth and change and blah 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 it's not set up for that for all of us so building spaces for joy and celebration in the midst of also having to deal with real life trauma and chronic stress
2: Mm
1: -hmm. um, which are two different things we can talk about a little later if you want but They're interrelated, but they're not exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. So, dealing with trauma and chronic stress, dealing with a world that is priming us, many of us, to not see ourselves in the fullness of our capacity as a human being, like you gotta make space to see yourself imagined forward as your best self. You've gotta make space to enjoy the quality of being Mm -hmm. that you want and that you might actually have. But because of the priming, because of just the onslaught of living day to day, it doesn't feel like it's there. So we have to call purposeful attention to it. Yeah. And go even if it's small, it's here, and we can grow it. We can build from. Yeah. that,
0: Right. Well, this, it's funny. There's something I tweeted the other day. Like, makes so much more sense in that context. Like the uh, the release date for Black Panther two came out, and I'm like, okay, here's one thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> just one thing in the news I can hold on to. Right. Like, and that was oh, why man. I felt like. When the first Black Panther movie came out, it was such a moment. And to get back to the notion of priming, there was that famous tweet of a guy standing in front of the poster. This is before the movie even came out. And he was saying, is this what white people feel like all the time? Right, because yes. the because that's the thing, right? Oh, if you walk that's
1: a around. friend of mine. Are you serious, Lee Colston? Oh
0: my god! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell no, I, I remember tweet. when. Uh,
1: <laughs> I think that's the one because Lee had a post that went viral, and I think that was it.
0: No, it, it totally went viral, but it was. Yeah. but That was that bald
1: was, head guy. I think right? so. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my buddy Lee. He's a Philadelphian actually.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah theater yeah, guy. No, but that that was what was made it such. That was what made it like Black Christmas. was sort of like, oh yeah, we don't usually get to walk into a movie theater and see mm-hmm. this. On a big, giant poster, right. like, celebrating us, like, yeah. and reaffirming us, usually we walk around and it's a bunch of white dudes. Right.
1: And there's a lot of folks that don't get to experience that, too, right? Like, there's, there's two challenges that this brings up for me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: One is that as much as I want to see these things, knowing that, like, the board chair for Marvel oh sure, is investing millions in oh, yeah, the election yeah, yeah. of Donald Trump... When I saw that, I was like, oh, yeah, Black Panther 2. ooh, yeah. yeah, this is capitalism's ugly head. Yeah. As much as I want to see that, I don't want to put a dime in the pocket of sure. someone that is enabling that kind of vitriol oh, yeah. across so many sectors of our humanity. I just can't possibly do it. And so if the vote is no Black Panther 2 ever— right. To ensure that this guy yeah. gets no money. And I yeah. know that one film is not making the Ooh, difference, yeah. right? Like, But there is this thing that comes up for me now of, like, in the 21st century where we can be grossly and, and like, hyper aware mm-hmm. of, like, how our dollars yeah. are moving and circulating and ending up in places that we might not agree with so we've got to think about that i think the other part for me is you're right like we got to see ourselves accepted and embraced
0: yeah on our own and celebrated Yeah, yeah in a
1: very particular kind of way uh that we don't get often and on the flip side i can't help but think in a world where that's also not happening for migrants particularly Mm, Latinx migrants, um, you know, it it does start to become a form of privilege that we need to be conscious of at least and be thoughtful about. Um, Yeah. You know, I'd say the other thing that started happening too is that we just need to be careful that we're not making caricatures out of African
2: Oh folks, sure, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah.
1: Once T'Challa started showing up on SNL,
2: yeah. I was like, okay, we're we're playing this is
1: we're crossing no, boundaries. Maybe, yeah, maybe. But,
0: that's, but that's scale, right? Like right. that's because we have a Black Panther. That's it, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like when there's like twenty, you know, Black Superhero films, and twenty, like that was what you know. Not to go too far afield, but that's why twenty eighteen was such an interesting year in film for me, is because we had Black Panther, we had Into the Spider Verse, we had um, If Bill Shrek could Talk, we had um, What a Black film, that was. Yeah, and we had all these different, and mostly male to be fair, but all these different Black characters. Yeah. that I could point to and say, this person is not like that person. It's not like that person. It's just a bunch of, like black people can be all these different things. Like that's five different things there used to be one. So we're getting some, you know what I mean? But yeah. like that, you know, scale to me is when you, when you start to solve that problem is because yeah, if you've only got one thing to point at by, by its nature, it's going to be a right, caricature. Right, Right.
1: <laughs> and I think the other thing too, is that we need to utilize the power of film and media for educating as well. Mm. And, and I don't just, I'm not talking about school as much as I'm talking about getting to this place around bias again, mm. right? So, Moonlight was such a fascinating film for me. Mm. And I used that to talk to a number of non black people uh, about the challenges um, of growing up in certain kinds of environments. And not just non-black people, because um, there are some black people I've used it with, too. Sure. Because classism is real. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but
0: who's the hero? This is the question I asked.
1: Who's the hero in Moonlight? Oh,
0: that's interesting. I mean, ostensibly, it's, it's our main character. Is um, it? Well, why, why wouldn't it be? It's Juan. Okay.
1: The drug dealer is the man who presents him with a prototype for how to be open to who he is,
2: Mm.
1: who provides him the love of a father Mm. and the access to a stable home. He shows him a tenderness that is normally not expressed in the context of the way masculinity, masculinity, excuse me, yeah. looks in general, let mm-hmm. alone the challenge we have in the African American community, and we talk about it ad nauseum, you know, about yeah. like what's healthy masculinity? How do we encourage more young boys to be expressive of yeah. their emotions and their feelings? And I love the scene where Juan has to confront mm-hmm. the fact that he's selling to, you know, Sharon's mother. Yeah, heroes are not perfect. And I think that he was the complete and total embodiment of that. But Chiron would not probably have existed in any sense of a healthy state,
2: yeah. If yeah. it had
1: not been for Juan in all of that excess, yeah, it challenges all of our notions around drug dealer equals bad, right? Unless they rap and then fund their records <laughs> and build a <laughs> label, right? Like that's the one place we kind of accept it. Um, And particularly now that the University of the Sciences here in Philadelphia is kicking off a a medical cannabis MBA, right? Like we have to really start to challenge what we've packaged up in terms and gets back to bias, right? Both conscious and unconscious, and these heuristics, these shortcuts of mappings that we have: drug dealer sells drugs, bad person, right? And one stands in this interesting space of being Chiron's nurturer, defender, yeah. protector because his mother couldn't do it. She was yeah. way in the throes of addiction and suffering from all of that. Who did he
0: have? Yeah. Let me throw this out here. Tell me if this sure. is an accurate assessment. Was Juan practicing trauma-informed care? I think
1: that Juan probably was, you know, like I think okay. that's a great question. Okay. When I look at the tenets of it, right Mm. i mean yeah he really was and at the same time probably not practicing with (laughs) other groups of people right because certainly not with
0: charone's mom you
1: know (laughs) right and he (laughs) was involved in creating harm um and so it's complex Yeah, yeah yeah right and our heroes are complex and they're not perfect and Mm -hmm only the i was about to even make a claim i don't believe i was going to say only the mythological heroes are perfect but that's not even oh, true God, either right the, the, the stories are awful right <laughs> or they're hilarious right like oh my one God. minute you've got excuse me you know yoruba mythology is fascinating right and not just yoruba mythology but just like indigenous mythologies mm-hmm. cuz one minute the gods or these you know celestial beings are the most uh humane and uh, and and caring kind people and they're angelic and big and they're doing the best and then the next minute they're sleeping with each other they're sleeping with so-and-so's wife mm. and they're stealing and they're getting drunk and making mistakes in creation right and it's all built from the premise that in mythology the goal is to see yourself sure in every one of these characters yeah You're seeing the fullness of your humanity as expressed, the best and the worst, pitfalls, the highs, the lows, and it's supposed to be instructing you about how to live a better life, about how to treat others, about... What not to do, right? Learning from yeah. your elders, right, is the, the goal. Right? Yeah. You learn so don't make the mistakes I made. You know, it's a real thing. And that's what's been handed down to us. And so, Moonlight to me fits beautifully in that mm-hmm. mythos, right? That space of instructional um, philosophy,
2: yeah.
1: you know, that comes with these fascinating characters where we can see ourselves in them. And then we can't see ourselves in them until we dig a little deeper and go like, you know what, I might not sell drugs, but maybe there's something I do to other people that doesn't promote their well-being or mine. And I do it because maybe I need to survive, or I do it because it makes me feel good, or I do it because whatever. And I got choices I can make, or maybe I don't have the space to make those choices because I I am kind of stuck where I'm at with these life variables around me and... Having to make sense of that is is, is a lot. This just goes back to the social thing. We do need each other. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. What? Um, what's, the guest? What's, what's the name of the director of uh, Moonlight? Oh, it was it Barry Jenkins. Barry Jenkins. Yeah, yeah. yeah he yeah. did. If Bill should talk, I feel yeah. we should do a whole separate podcast about Barry Jenkins movies. Yeah. <laughs> I met
1: Barry Jenkins. Are you serious? Yo, oh God. When we were young, though, we were Are like twenty two, twenty three years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. I did this program teaching uh, in. Miami Dade County working with a Latinx migrant farm working children. Mm-hmm. And uh, a co teacher there, a guy named Lucas, went to school with Barry. And one of our students had been in the film that they had made as college students. And I remember when I saw his face, I was like, I got that guy. Guy got look so familiar. And then one of my old students had hit me up and was like, yo, you see Barry's movie? And I'm like, Barry? I don't remember. He's like, remember Barry Lucas, his friend? I was like, oh, my God, the world is so small. That's so funny. Yeah, yeah, no. Nah. So I was like, wow, I met Barry Jenkins a long time ago. <laughs> I, I don't even know if he would remember me. But,
0: all right, I want to yeah. have two, two more things before we close out here because um, uh, we, could, we could talk forever. Sure. Um, but, <laughs> all right, so one is I know some you do trauma training. I know one of your clients you've worked with, it was the Richmond Police Department?
1: Yeah, so I'm a, yeah, so I'm a part of a project called Performing Statistics, and Performing Statistics hired me to come in and be a part of their work with the police department. They mm-hmm. hired me to build some curriculum and to deliver some training to the Richmond Police Department. Um, so Performing Statistics is this multimedia project um, that works with youth who have been incarcerated. It started with going into prisons, teaching youth, and then also negotiating for them to come for an hour off of the site to be in a different space, work with professional makers and artists, and um, really get into this conversation around what would have helped you stay free, Mm. and what do you need to stay free? Um, And so you get into this, talk about trauma-informed, right? You get into this conversation about what happened and what should have happened Mm. and what do you need now and how do we help you move forward, right? It's not viewing you as a problem, yeah, right? So they started that work and then got into a lot of policy advocacy, started having these, like, larger town hall design charrettes, if you will, with, like, formerly incarcerated young people, with policy advocates and lawyers and all this other. And they got other national groups involved and really started organizing to get youth prisons shut Mm. and have been successful in doing that um, and getting some laws changed. I mean, they did some fascinating stuff down in the city of Richmond. And one of the things that they were able to do is get the chief of police, the then then chief of police. He just um, stepped down not too long ago, retired. Um, to agree that the entire Richmond Police Department should go through a training Mm. that the um, co-directors, Mark Strandquist, um, Trey Hart, and Gina Lyles three of them I put together and the training is made up of this art, this multimedia artwork Hmm. that these young people made. So they made art, but it's a mobile training space and the artwork is engrafted into the training. So there's film pieces, there are audio pieces, there are murals and photo galleries and, other installation pieces of VR (laughs) installation. Not like it's grown over time. Um, and the folks that did a bunch of the VR work on stranger things, helped them uh, put this whole thing together and worked with them on it. So it's this, again, a a true multimedia immersive, um, exhibit. And we use that exhibit to train. We've done a bunch of uh, new recruits, but, I was brought in again around some curriculum design, and then tra- and then delivering some training around trauma mm-hmm. and adolescent development, such as the adolescent brain, mm-hmm. and really trying to help officers understand how stress and trauma work, mm. and like how it impacts them too, mm. to get them to rethink these encounters with the young people, right? right? And when you think about those definitions we talked about earlier, the yeah. social variables, how people learn, all those things that you've heard me talk about. Like, we package that into, like, I get about an hour and a half, roughly, mm-hmm. at most. Sometimes I steal an hour and a half. I probably get, like, 75 minutes,
2: right?
1: <laughs> uh, I need to be a better a partner. But uh, it's a lot of information to try to pack in that sure. time. But we put that in there, and... um or I was brought in to do that, and so it's been a fascinating process mm-hmm. talking and working with law enforcement. Because um, I am an abolitionist at my core. Okay. And I am... And explain what
0: that means. People might not...
1: Yeah, I don't believe in prison. Okay. You know, it, do, it doesn't work. The data's awful.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Recidivism is so high. Um, young people are often incarcerated at rates that make no sense, and it's really, in that level, we're talking about Offenses that like violate um, uh, probation and they're nonviolent offenses, Mm.
2: right?
1: There's this mythos of, you know, even going back to all that super predator stuff, there's this myth (laughs) about black children or, you know, kids from the city ruining stuff and Mm -hmm. raping everybody. But that's not what the data says, right? Um, So we've got to be clear that and understand that we on the abolition side do believe that people should answer to mm-hmm. the harm they've created. Yeah. Right. This isn't like get off. Right. But we don't believe that people should be forced to go to prison, which at this point is better at sending people back to prison yeah. in terms of the data than it is to yeah. doing any of this corrective blah, 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 yeah. blah, that people are claiming
0: that it can do. Yeah, and we could and probably should do a whole other podcast just on the topic of abolition, because I find, I find this fascinating. I've had some interesting conversations with folks about that, uh, including folks who've been in prison. Um, and uh, But I do kind of want to circle back to the, the police training bit. So when an officer, what does it look like for an officer to have an encounter with an individual knowing what they know, like post-training, like ideally, like what is it? How are they behaving differently? or What are they thinking about they might not have been thinking about before?
1: Yeah, so, you know, there's this... Uh Statement in like the project management world, if you will, that's mm-hmm. like how a project starts tells you so much about like what's going to come. <laughs> and then so it's kind of the same case here, so true. right? It's like <laughs> if you you have the gun, you have the law, you have power,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you can set the tone. Mm. And, and remembering that a 14-year-old is actually a child. Mm. Yeah. Uh, really interesting research literature on how black boys are aged mm. about, I think it's about 3.5, 4 years older mm. um, than, than they are appearing.
0: So when an uh, officer sees a 14-year-old, in their head they're seeing like an 18-year-old. There's interesting research to definitely back that wow. up. I mean, that would explain a lot of terrible shootings <laughs> absolutely
1: um, they found the same they looked at uh they did the same kind of experiment with white freshman girls in the same um research study they used police officers and white freshmen mm. women um same day on average you know you're wow. almost four years older Jeez. looking at 12 year olds yeah and 16 year olds right yeah so one it's sharing that kind of information sharing how trauma and stress work sharing a bit about how conscious and unconscious bias works how heuristics work and that they're all socially influenced and so understanding like how you came to your spaces of understanding and meaning in the world Mm -hmm. um you know the goal is to change the how the interactions even start
2: Mm.
1: to change the disposition people are walking into these interactions with yeah because you already have power and young yeah. people, humans in general, but young people in particular will claim power wherever they can. Mm. And you. we have to remember that. Yeah. And it looks so many kinds of ways. Yeah, um, I actually feel like, and this is going to sound kind of intense to some people, but I do feel like I have more inroad with young people who are like claiming power everywhere and just acting out and doing mm-hmm. all kinds of things. I feel like I have more inroad there than the young person that's so detached. Mm. Why is that? Well, because when you give up your right as a human to have power, Mm. I won't say they've given it up, but they've detached from it. Yeah. It's like, why would I even bother? It gets back to this place of. Suicidality yeah, right? Yeah, I'm not yeah. saying that There's an automatic link there yeah, 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 I it, yeah. But I mean if you do some reading We think about Chronic depression Yeah uh, But like When you are in A place of shame Yeah A place of complete And total powerlessness And you're that detached That you don't even Want to try right um that can be a longer journey right because the other energy I'm just kind of like helping to reshape shape Re- yeah, reshape, yeah. I don't have to get the energy going yeah getting that energy going can be difficult I've been in experiences where we've been able to like get that moving mm-hmm. um but it's a team effort mm-hmm. and I'm not the clinician I'm clinically informed I say it, right like okay. I've worked under a lot of Really brilliant clinicians, psychiatrists, yeah. clinical social workers, therapists, mm-hmm. professional counselors, LPCs, licensed professional counselors, the whole nine. But uh, I'm very clear on what my job is not. Right. right? I can be in therapeutics and therapeutic mm-hmm. activity. Mm-hmm. I can do psychoeducation, but I'm not a therapist. Right. But I make sure I have those resources available. Yeah. So that as a person is dealing with life and trauma yeah, and stressors, et cetera. on the flip side, they've got a place like the village where they can come and be engaged in meaningful activities, things they love, with people and adults that love them. You know what I mean? Like, you need both at the same time going.
0: Well, it goes back to that intersectionality, right? It's like we're not just one thing. We're not dealing with just one issue. It's,
2: yeah. Right.
0: Um, One last thing I want to hit up just because of the the timeliness of it. So we we had talked before. So it is the 400-year anniversary of our ancestors. (laughs) We're brought here in chains. And different people are sort of talking about it in different ways. I I wanted to talk to you a little about it, just from the perspective of, like, inherited trauma. And literally, I know people have been talking about, like, trauma can be physically passed down. (laughs) Like, (laughs) generations, like, how do we talk about that? Like, what's the trauma? How does, how is the trauma of, I'll I'll believe it this way, how is the trauma of slavery informing our lives today?
1: Sure. So... Maybe this is the like the science man. I mean, I always start on the side of like mm-hmm. the conjecture first. Right? Sure. So like, epigenetics is a is a budding field. Mm-hmm. Um, we are trying our best as um, a nation, and I think an international group of researchers. Um, we're all trying our best to understand. The mechanisms by which this works—that mm-hmm. there's some general understanding—but you know, anytime there's a breakthrough in science, right? We have a breakthrough. People put out their original frameworks and dispositions, and then more learning happens, and it's like, okay, well, maybe not exactly that, right? right, right. But we know this is a real thing. We yeah. got to do more digging and figure it out, right? So yeah. that field is kind of there, yeah. Um. When I think about all of this in the context of ancestry, our ancestors, our journey in this country, um, we are the descendants of prisoners of war. Mm. I think we have to really, and there are other people that say this. I'm not saying I'm the first one to think like this. I think we have to reframe the narrative, Mm -hmm. um, we are people, we are descendants of people who were enslaved through acts of war.
0: Mm. So impact that a little bit. Like, what is that? Um, so when you go to
1: someone else's place or space mm-hmm. and decide that you're going to take them, um, you decide you're going to buy them from mm-hmm. the other people who through war right. took them as prisoner. like, this is yeah. all still war. Yeah. Because you weren't just taking people either. You started claiming land and resources, mm-hmm. right? It was a literal attack on the continent. Yeah. Um, And w- w- we got to remember that. Yeah. That this just wasn't happenstance. That this was actually planned. Yeah. That while we're talking about 1619, you can go back to the late 1400s mm. and the Portuguese were coming into Africa. Yeah. Like, so this idea that, like, people didn't know there were resources. There's, oh, there's, this, half the time the story is, like, told with, like, happenstance. Right. right. Where they leave out these bits and pieces. It was a concentrated attack on what was there that mm-hmm. people knew about. Yeah. And it was clear.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, Northern Africa fell in, like, the later 700s. I want to say somewhere 765 A.D. or C.E., um somewhere between seven sixty five like seven seventy, Northern Africa finally fell to Arab invasion. Mm-hmm. So we also have to remember that like a bunch of our ancestors were also under attack prior to Europe coming sure. to that continent. People wanted what was there because they knew.
2: Yeah.
1: And there's this little there's this looming thought that everybody in Africa um was on primitive language, sure. still drawing <laughs> on caves. Yeah. Um, you know, trying to figure out whether or not a caterpillar or a chicken were the same thing like it's the way they reason about yeah. it yeah. out loud and how we were just so underdeveloped right. is not true to real history, yeah, and what we understand now anthropologically about what was where and what was happening, yeah. right? There were universities, yeah, in Mali and Timbuktu people spoke multiple languages, including Arabic. And we're reading and writing (laughs) in Arabic all over Western Africa. So I think for us, we've got to remember all that because of the psychologically inherited trauma that comes through narratives Mm -hmm. and comes through our reasoning about ourselves through that lens, right? You destroy history and culture to make sure you're not connected to the power Mm. that history, culture, and narrative brings. There's interesting research in public health looking at how do narratives impact population health right and And how um much they activate like the body 's stress mechanism, which by default activates the body 's inflammatory system, right, and mm-hmm. like how is all of that impacting health? How does the story about who you are and the meaning that you 've taken oh, from yeah. that, and as it 's been handed down years over years over how is that impacting you so that 's one layer of trauma, and then there is this physiological layer mm-hmm. of trauma um direct physiological um inheritance of um, the impact of trauma on the body, mm-hmm. which again, we're still trying to figure out. But a, a friend of mine recently, she works in reproductive health. She said, you know, Michael, um, him's Billy. She's out of uh, Lauren Billy. She's out of New York doing this reproductive health work. And she said to me, you know, a woman's eggs, she's born with all the eggs she'll ever have. Mm. So literally you were in your grandmother, and that blew my mm. mind.
2: I <laughs> said, whoa, that's a wow. She's like, yeah. When a woman
1: is pregnant mm-hmm. with a girl, the girl has her eggs in her. That's wow. there. So a grandmother is legitimately carrying, right. when she carries a baby girl, is carrying Two generations. And yeah. I'm like, that is magic and powerful <laughs> and wild yeah. and intense. So we were in our grandparents. Yeah. We know that through just one generation, maternal depression is awful mm. for a fetus in the womb.
2: Mm.
1: Right? It is. It, there's plenty of study on this. It can literally disrupt the biological... Regulation of stress, of the stress mechanism as it develops. Because the stress mm-hmm. mechanism is weird. It doesn't develop, um, I think, the way people think it does. Mm-hmm. It really does develop in relationship. Hmm. Like the biological uh, setting of how your body responds to stress develops in relationship. So you're kind of born with it half-cooked, mm-hmm. right? And it's the experiences with adults and caregivers, et cetera, Um, that is going to help continue shaping that thing. What we found is that that mechanism can be impacted through issues like maternal depression Mm. and an oversaturation of stressful experiences and stressors hitting the body of a a mother. Um, And so... We're fi- we're still learning, right? Yeah. But we but the re the it's you can Google it. It's there. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? And so we've gotta we understand it that proximally. And so trying to understand it going back, you know, that's where yeah. this, I think part of this epigenetic thing, epigenetic thing is sitting too. So I can't even say we know enough to talk about it fully. Sure. What we do know is that there is physiological hand down. Yeah. Um Beyond just the immediate generation afterwards. Yeah. Um, you know, I brought up some of that other stuff because it, it looks like there are a number of compounding factors therein.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, we've got to keep studying, keep figuring it out. But yeah. I think there's enough on the table to say that we have to schedule joy and <laughs> <in> celebration. <laughs> and we have to be cognizant or we have to be aware of what it means to understand our humanity, and I go back to the human sciences yeah, yeah. and why everybody needs to be like brought up to speed on this, so that we are reimaginating and iterating systems of care yeah. and joy and growth and celebration and healing, as opposed to whatever systems we have right now. Yeah, you know.
0: That sounds like actually a really, really great place to stop. So, um, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Again, my guest has been uh, Mike O'Brien. Mike, thanks so much. Thank
1: you so much. I hope this was coherent. Oh,
0: yeah. It never has to be coherent. It just has to be entertaining and educational. That's all we need. Nice. Um, (laughs) Nice. uh, Thank you all for joining uh, for the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dillon Thomas, and we will see you next time.